the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, let's see. I got out the driver's license here, and uh, yep, that's me. Okay. Just wanted to make sure we... <laughs> Make sure we have the right person. Good afternoon to you. Welcome. It is Thursday, and we are here on the first day of November. Trust you survived yesterday okay. And uh, I will give you this assurance that no matter what the outcome of next Tuesday is, America will survive. Perhaps a bit worse for wear, but we shall survive. Next Tuesday, of course, is not a repeat of Halloween, though it could be scary. It is, in fact, Election Day. We're going to talk about the elections more again tonight as we sort of prime the pump, prepare you, and get you set to not only mentally prepared, but um, um, prepared from an informational standpoint and hopefully help motivate you as well. There are a number of important ballot measures, as we've been discussing on the program, and, of course, some key uh, races across the state that um, not only address statewide elections, for positions such as uh, governor of California. And then, of course, we have uh, all of the House seats up for grabs. Senator Dianne Feinstein in the political battle, certainly for her life, up against Kevin DeLeon. So it's um, it's an interesting race this year, much going on. And uh, I want to pivot, if I can, to uh, an issue and one of the candidates in California um, running for California State Controller, a job that it's one of those unsung jobs you don't hear a lot about. I mean, it's kind of we vote for governor and you know what the governor does. The lieutenant governor, not quite sure, except he, he gets in trouble when the governor's not in town. We know that much. And the controller. What exactly does the controller do? Well, the controller, controller holds the purse strings. And, in fact, the controller can very much help set the tone and tenor for not only the way um, money is invested and managed in our state, but, but certainly also um, have um, a lot to say about the way the state impacts your take-home pay insofar as um, taxes and things of this sort. One of the candidates running for California State Controller is my first guest tonight. He is Constantinos, and I hope I don't butcher this, Roditis. He is a candidate for California State Controller, and uh, Constantinos, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. So tell us a bit first, uh, and I know that you're also very much involved with Proposition 6, and I want to get to that in a moment. But let's talk first about um, your efforts to seek election for controller of California. Now, the incumbent, uh, Betty Yee, of course, is running for re-election as well. One of the big concerns, of course, in a state like California, where we uh, not only so heavily tax, but also so heavily spend, is that there doesn't seem to be many on the Democratic side of the equation that want to um, temper either of those, either taxing or spending. In fact, we've seen California state legislature even rub their hands together and say, aha, the president has given a big tax increase, decrease for corporations across America. Let's see if we can't take advantage of all that money. So tell me, what is the motivation for you running as controller for the state of California? 
Well, the motivation is that we have to realize that in California, we have an elected controller. In most states, there are appointed, and I believe that specifically it's elected, is because they're supposed to be the chief taxpayer watchdog. They're supposed to be the ones who are watching out for the taxpayer to root out corruption, waste, fraud, and abuse, and to give good advice, sound fiscal responsibility to the legislature and to the governor. And that's not what we don't see. It's, uh, you know, the controller has the independent audit authority and can withhold funding from anything that doesn't comply with state law. Uh, but you don't see any pushback from the controller's office on anything. Uh, for instance, on day one, I will uh, hold payment, stop payment, defund the high-speed rail project because I would be legally allowed to as controller because the high-speed rail is unlawful. It is in clear violation of Prop 1A and the mandates that were set forth by the voters. And so on day one, I'll get to save taxpayers $100 billion by canceling that project. I like the sound of that already. Does it also fall to your position to be able to engage in something that I know way back in the day, uh, then then uh, Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger talked about wanting to go in and engage in audits of a variety of levels of departments within our state. That never quite happened. But does the position of controller have the authority to do that? Yes, anything that uses state funding. So even uh, they've expanded, actually, the auditing authority of the controller, even uh, to have greater on city levels. If you remember the city of Bell or on Compton, uh, usually they come in after the fact, after a scandal has been broken, um, and then they start auditing instead of just doing a good job and making sure that government's running well. But, yes, uh, state programs, anything that uses state money, there's certain restrictions, obviously, but, yes, I could come in there in audit programs and make sure that everything's on the up and up. Folks want to get more information about your candidacy, they can go online. It's simply roditisforcontroller.com. That's R-O-D-I-T-I-S, roditisforcontroller.com. One of the other campaigns that you're heavily involved with is Proposition 6, the gasoline tax relief. This has kind of slipped in another one of those, hey, let's vote it in. Maybe nobody will notice until we all showed up at the gas pump and went, wow, what happened here? And, of course, California is paying some of the highest gasoline taxes in our state. Not only did the legislature increase the cost per gallon of gasoline, most importantly impacting people who can least afford to pay that, folks that typically have to commute a long distance because they can't afford to live where they work, but then too they also secretly added in a little bit of an increase in the registration tax. Tell us more about this proposition and what does it do? Okay, well the first thing to, to know is when you read your ballot statement, it's a complete lie. Uh, the Attorney General, Xavier Becerra, basically uh, took into the sense uh, union poll data, how can we scare voters and trick them, and absolutely change the ballot title. This does not remove any fees on road repairs. Uh, most of the gas tax does not go towards road repair, never has, never will. It's, uh, it's basically the politician's slush fund. So what they ended up doing is they ended up raising our uh, gas tax and vehicle registration fees, uh, even after they promised that they wouldn't do so without a vote of the people. So what this does, it repeals the gas tax increase, and it repeals the car tax increase, and then also sets a constitutional amendment that they can never raise our taxes again without our permission for the car and gas tax. So that's what a yes on six will do. It will repeal the gas and car tax and make a constitutional amendment to prevent them from ever raising our taxes again. But here's actually the scariest part that a lot of people don't know about SB1, the gas tax increase. Did you know that your taxes are going back up in July of 2019? 
No big surprise there now, is there? Yep. Yep. Every year the tax will go up. So it's going to be about, it'll go up from before we're the fourth highest to the second highest gas tax. Now we're just below Pennsylvania and we're going to go ahead and be the top one in July when we get the increase of that 19 and a half cents. See, when the um, governor said so, he wanted California to be number one, I thought that meant in, you know, production or in productivity or in uh, 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 gross domestic product. Clearly, though, he must have meant in taxation. Yeah, and uh, poverty, because we have the highest poverty in the entire country. One out of five Californians live in poverty, and 47% uh, consider themselves working poor. So this tax hurts uh, the poor and working class the most. Uh, from the normal family of four, with typical driving, with two cars, it's $650 a year. Uh, and then the super commuters, the people who drive 45 minutes each way to work, uh, it would be about $800. So depending on how much you obviously drive or how many products you buy, because you know there's a tax on diesel uh, that went up about 20 cents per gallon plus an excise tax. And so... Uh, you know, the, the cost will continually go up every single year around July. You're going to get a uh, tax increase upon tax increase. It's it's never ending because uh, they don't actually want to have this discussion again. They go, we snuck it in here. We got it good. We're trying to scare you with our $50 million uh, ad buy and saying bridges and everything else and roads are going to fall apart. You're going to die. You know, I love the one of the flyers that they sent out, which I found hilarious, was the firefighter like, you must protect the roads. And the guy got $350,000 last year in his salary and will collect millions of dollars in pension. And so, uh, you know, they, of course, want the gas tax to continue to go up because they need to fund our unfunded pension liability. And they've been rating the gas tax uh, for years. And so there is no difference. This is just uh, a money grab from them. And sadly, this has been a political football for many, many years uh, to to walk folks back. Gray Davis was the first one who did a significant increase on the registration fee. And then, of course, when he was followed, actually kicked out of office uh, and in a very embarrassing fashion as well. When he left office in disgrace, followed by uh, then Arnold Schwarzenegger, he immediately reduced uh, the registration fee fee. And now, of course, it's been brought yet back up again. And then, of course, this ongoing ping pong deal with gasoline taxes here. We pay some of the highest rates in the union, even just for the simple refineries because of all the tight air control restrictions that we have. And you've, if you've watched the, the price at the pump, you know that when they put the uh, the additive in for summer fuel, the price goes up. And then when they say, well, winter comes, we take it out. So the price goes up. And they do this every single year. And as Constantinos just mentioned, the real penalty here are on poor people. The real penalty here is for the person who can't afford to live within, uh, you know, walking distance or barting um, convenience to uh, work. And so they have to drive a car. And in doing so, they are penalized the most. Believe me, the individual tooling around town in the Tesla doesn't care and doesn't pay the gasoline tax anyway. So for the rest of us... And to avoid confusion on this measure, um, if you want lower taxes for gasoline, vote yes on six. Let's put it that way, because they've written it in a very confusing fashion. So the easiest way to think of this is if you want lower gas taxes, if you want a reduction in the amount of tax that you pay 
for your vehicle registration, then vote yes on Proposition 6. More details on the candidacy for California State Controller online at rodidisforcontroller.com. And our thanks to Constantinos Rodidis for being with us tonight on this segment of Lifeline. All right, much more to come. We talk about elections. We talk about a lot of the values driving voters next Tuesday. We'll do more of that after an update on traffic. Here is Michael Bennett with the latest. Michael. At many levels, this is, as we've articulated here for several weeks now, uh, one of the most divisive midterm elections. Um, we are opined yesterday when uh, Pete Peterson from Pepperdine University uh, was on the program with us about the fact that typically this is called the off election year. Uh, nothing off about this year. And if you think you can take this year off, no, don't want to do that. Uh, there's a lot of critical issues here on the table, not only in terms of many of the ballot measures that we've been talking about, but the overarching notion of the future direction of our nation, not just economically, but certainly morally. Um, nothing demonstrated that more than looking at the protracted battle uh, for the United States Supreme Court. Uh, certainly the first nominee, President's pick of Neil Gorsuch, went through a lot easier than Brett Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh, I think, is going to have a long time to prove himself, uh, given the circumstances, but it also demonstrates um, how far those that are concerned about the future of issues such as life um, or in the case of those on the decidedly pro-abortion side, uh, how they want to protect the ability to, um, to make money doing that, provide that service. And so this is a key time. This is, in fact, one of those rare moments in history for those that have been involved in the pro-life movement for many, many years that look at this and say, wow, never thought this day would come, but yet here it is. We are joined now by Sherry Miller, Sherry is the executive advisor for the Concerned Women of America here in California. She's been involved with the organization for well over 20 years now and joins us now to talk a bit about the importance of getting out our vote from a value standpoint. And, and Sherry, certainly this does seem to be a unique, unique time in history. It is indeed, Greg. It is, uh, it's a pleasure for, for me to, to be with you today, Craig, and um, thank you. I agree that at the top of the hour when you said that on November 6th we will survive. <laughs> but in 2018, I think you will agree with me that Americans are more angry, stressed, divided morally, politically as a nation than we've ever known. And, Craig, if we are to retain any fragment of the Judeo-Christian America that we know and love, the Church must awaken and vote. If we, as Christians, don't speak up, stand up, and vote now, who will? Um, the very Judeo-Christian values, constitutional freedoms that we cherish, we could lose to those who are voting for leaders who do not support our beliefs. One of my favorite quotes uh, from Ronald Reagan is that freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction, and that we must act and vote today to preserve tomorrow. But as you know, sadly, our freedoms, supporting public prayer, sanctity of life, religious liberty, limited government, freedom of speech, the First and Second Amendments, patriotism, Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, are all under attack like never before, and our schools are teaching our children LGBTQ gender identity, creating sexual confusion because of Satan's evil lie of pro-choice 
and abortion, women are harmed, babies are killed in the womb, and baby body parts are sold for profit. Unfortunately, um, for just too many decades, our courts, our state assemblies, our Congress have passed laws that are absolutely morally wrong and that have violated our biblical beliefs. And the best way to legalize the protection of mother and her baby in the womb, the best way to repeal the radical LGBTQ agenda in our schools, the best way to ensure for future generations our freedoms and Christian heritage is for the Church to awaken and to fight with our prayers and our votes. So thank you so much for having me on this evening. I appreciate it. Certainly one of the big, the big issues here in, in California, and we watched this play out. Uh, in fact, I won't say who it was, but I, I ran into the executive director of an organization um, who came in the crosshairs of the California State Legislature over the whole issue of um, promoting uh, abortion at decidedly mm-hmm. pro-life um, clinics and uh, you know folks that are familiar with the story know exactly what I'm talking about uh, but it, it it reminded me running into him today here at the station uh, just how how fragile all of this is in so far as the victories that have been won and and in particular just the pure ability to be able to educate women on the choices that are available to them and that this is not a one-size-fits-all if you find yourself in an unplanned or inconvenient pregnancy that you just simply go down and uh, schedule an appointment with an abortion doctor, that that is not choice, Mm -hmm. that in fact restricts choice. And so the decisions we make in in terms of, nobody would think, hey, when I go to uh, the ballot box and vote for governor, how is that ever going to trickle down? Well, it certainly does, doesn't it? Mm. Oh, it absolutely does. Um, Proverbs 29, verse 2 says that when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people groan. My question is always, how will the righteous have authority in our nation if the righteous don't take action and vote? Um, and and in, in California, California's legislation will just take abortion, as you brought up for an example, is overwhelmingly pro-choice. Nationally, the United States continues to be one of only seven countries in the entire world that allows abortions past 20 weeks, when, according to medical research, that's when babies feel pain in the womb. And among the other countries are China, North Korea, and Vietnam. Um, Late-term abortion, indeed abortion at any stage of pregnancy, is murder of an unborn baby. Um, And again, the best way to legalize the protection of mother and her baby in the womb is with with our votes at the polls. Uh, some people uh, disgusted with what we've seen in much of the uh, political rancor over recent years uh, may choose to stay home, may say, you know, this is, is so debased now. I don't even want to be a part of it. But do we really have a mm-hmm. choice in that regard? I mean, from a standpoint of being a, a, a people that is self-governed, we have no monarchy here. There's no king. Uh, so we choose the people that lead us. Do we really have a choice to stay home? Uh, No, uh, we don't. Actually, columnist Matt Barber has said that we find ourselves today in the midst of a revolutionary war, not a war with guns, but a war of ideals, and that we face unprecedented threat to our faith and freedom. Um, Our basic liberties, he said, our moral foundations are under assault, 
And so to fight in this spiritual battle, Craig, really, the Church must understand that the goal of humanism is against God. The goal of humanism is to eliminate Christianity, and that we are in a spiritual battle for America's soul. Um, Concerned Women for America believes that we will only see change when we, as a Church, and God's people called by His name, first of all, commit to pray, to pray for our leaders, according to 1 Timothy 2, 1-5, through 5, for all leaders, kings, presidents, those who are in authority, so that we might live in godliness and dignity, and then to pray for America's spiritual revival, that all will come to a knowledge of the truth, and then number two is to call legislators to express support, opposition to legislation, and number three is to vote our values. If our voice is not being represented in the public arena, it's because Christians are not calling the legislators and Christians are not voting. Um, the power of one phone call to a legislator is immense. Concerned Women for America estimates that one call represents 100 voices. And in California, we have 26 million Christians. So. It's just that people of faith, we must speak out. We have such power with our phone calls, with our votes, uh, to be represented in the public arena uh, in order that government leaders hear us and that then we'll make laws that reflect our moral values. If you want a good example of this, we're going to get to one coming up right after the break that specifically points to what happens when there are people that don't have any um, reasonable um, respect for the Constitution. And uh, we'll, we'll tell you more about that in a moment. Meanwhile, I want to thank um, our guest for being with us tonight, Sherry Miller. She is the California Executive Advisor with Concerned Women for America. 5.30 on the clock. And uh, let's step aside here for a quick second. Get an update for you from the KFAX Traffic Centers. We say good afternoon to Michael Bennett. Michael, what's going on out there? Hello. All right, welcome back to the conversation. We're going to switch it up here for a moment because in radio, when it's live, you sometimes have to uh, to do that. <laughs> so as we continue on, we're going to meet um, a, a candidate for school board, specifically for the Fremont Unified School District. Larry Sweeney, in fact, has been a seated member on the board for about 16 years now, 35-year-long Fremont area resident. And while you say, well, Craig, my goodness, you're focusing on a local school board? Really? Well, I got to tell you, many of our future leaders start at that level. They might begin at the local school board, move on to city council, move on to mayor, move on to an assembly seat before you know it, their governor or a member of the California um, group that heads off to Washington, D.C. So the, these, are, these are key pivotal roles, both in terms of sort of the latter, uh, so to speak, uh, of politics. But as in Larry's case, I think you'll find that his commitment really is to local education, therefore the reason why he has been on the board for as many years as he has and, and now running for his fifth term. And it's a big job and a critical one in Fremont because... Fremont, you know, that quiet little sleepy community where Tesla is located? Yeah, that same Fremont has been sort of a lightning rod for controversy. There's been everything from measures by the California, I mean, the uh, Fremont City Council to say that we're, we're a little busy, so the police department, while they still charge a fee to have a alarm permit for your property or your home, your business, but the Fremont police will no longer respond to alarm calls. What? Or, worse yet, 
more than twice now has Fremont been the center of attention, and not in a good way, because of controversial curricula within public classrooms. The city of Fremont is nothing to shake a stick at from an educational standpoint. They have some 42 schools, more than 34,000 students, a massive budget, 3,000 employees. They are looked at as a trendsetter in many ways. But uh, most recently, um, some of the controversy surrounding the section education program has been a trendsetter in a wrong direction. Candidate for Fremont Unified School District and board member Larry Sweeney joins us now. Larry, thank you for taking some time to be with us today. What about this particular proposal that was being considered by the board um, and eventually voted against, but was up for uh, such heated debate in the midpoint of this year? What was it about this particular curricula that disturbed you? Well, well, Craig, first of all, thank you very much for extending me this opportunity. Uh, as, as you mentioned with your, your very detailed introduction, I have been on the board for 16 years, and in that time you get to see some of the same things, the very cyclical happening over and over again. And though Fremont is uh, its own community, we're seeing this same type of issue played out throughout the country. So what's happening with our, uh, with our sex ed, if you will, is California requires that we teach sex education in seventh grade and ninth grade. Fremont also allows sex education to be taught in 4th, 5th, and 6th grade. It's an opt-out, so if the parents do not want to participate, they don't have to participate. They know ahead of time, and they they fill out a form. Their children are not exposed to that uh, education if they don't want them to be. However, one of the things that uh, has has come up in the last couple years because of the Healthy uh, uh, Youth Act and these other things that are now part of the uh, law is we were told that our... uh, curriculum for fourth, fifth, and sixth grade is non-compliant with state law. So we had to take some time to try and make it compliant. Uh, A lot of your listeners might not know that just as California proposes and has a curriculum for science and math and English and all the subjects for all the school districts to choose from, many, many different uh, categories and programs to choose from, the state does not offer curriculum to choose from on sex education. So that's up to every individual school district. Now, we've taken a a poll for for many years. We've taken these polls, and the majority of families do want to have the option to have sex education taught in fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. Well, what is incumbent upon us is that when the curriculum comes before the board, it should face the same process as all curriculum faces. In other words, when we choose curriculum for math or history or science, it goes through a process, and this did not. This particular curriculum is called the three R's. Now, normally what we do when we have curriculum is we take a couple of different options, a couple of different programs, so that would be the options for the community, and the teachers break into groups, and they pilot the curriculum. They meet a couple of times, and they go back and forth assessing the strengths and weaknesses of each program. Uh, this is in preparation to eventually make a recommendation to the board. Part of the process that engages the community and keeps everything transparent and accountable, Fremont has, like many uh, school districts, a curriculum and instruction committee, which is made up of parents and teachers and community members, and this is the venue where the public can see the discussion and have their input. Well, when this particular curriculum came before the curriculum and instruction committee, remember, there were no options. There was just this one uh, three R's. The uh, staff told the curriculum instruction committee that the board had already approved this, which we had not, and that the uh, uh, the Curriculum Instruction Committee would not have the opportunity to even discuss it or make a recommendation to the board. 
this is a complete end run to get uh, around the process. What this did, as you were mentioning in the beginning, is it caused hundreds of people to show up at board meetings. Uh, we even had one board meeting just dedicated solely to this topic, and it went to almost 3 in the morning. Mm-hmm. And we had uh, thousands of people sign a petition that they wanted more choices than just the three R's. The district did not move, uh, did not budge. And speaker after speaker after speaker said, we need to look at other options. We, we were not allowed to look at other options. And many of the speakers, and rightly so, said, there need to be other components that are included in this curriculum, components like nutrition or, or mental health or bullying or suicide prevention or self-image, you know, resources for students to use and to access as they're exposed to this information. Additionally, the opt-out portion, where the parents sign a slip to say that their child is not to be exposed to this curriculum, is a very valuable component, mostly because we need parents to have their choices honored and respected. So what happened, to make a, a long story short, is the district never swayed, and it was just three R's with none of these additions and no other type of uh, option to choose from. So it was extremely contentious. So the board voted um, three to two. We have a five-member board that we would not have uh, sex education in fourth, fifth, and sixth grade this year until we could come back with a curriculum that met the criteria. This caused a firestorm, as you say. And uh, two members of the board asked that it be brought back. And when it was brought back for a second vote, one of the board members who was agreement with uh, not having it until it complied with the community's wishes switched her vote. So... The, with, the, with the condition that uh, fourth grade would be left out, but for this year, fifth and sixth grade would be included, and we would just use three R's. So I, you can see, by the way, I'm setting all this up, that uh, a lot of people, perhaps the majority of people, were not satisfied with the way this rolled out. Um, there's, a, there's another component to this, too, that's, that's very, very sad, and I, it, it really illustrates the importance of the opt-out component. Uh, one of the parents informed me that her daughter in an elementary school, either in fifth or sixth grade, um, was in the, the teacher was adamant that the teacher wanted to let these girls in her class know things that the teacher wanted them to know. So what the teacher did is she excused the boys from the class. They went out in the playground unsupervised, and she locked the door, and she proceeded to tell those girls who were in that class what she wanted to tell them, about 15 minutes worth. Two of the girls were crying, and at least four of the girls had those opt-out permission slips already in the uh, principal's office, which meant they were not to be exposed to any of this. Well, that parent was livid. She called me later that afternoon when her daughter came home and told her what happened, and I met with her. And the parent wanted to bring her daughter to that board meeting that night, and I was really afraid. I was afraid that if this parent and her daughter, and they were willing to do it, stood up in front of the community, there'd be a tremendous amount of support, but we also don't know if there'd be retaliation or something that would follow this family for the, the rest of their career at Fremont. So I asked them, could I represent your, your view, your story, and that would protect you? And they said yes. So I did, and I have to tell you, I received very little support from the people who were very three R's for that story. And what that story indicates is when we have a process, we have to honor the parents' wishes. So you can see why it was contentious from the very start, that it didn't follow the process, it didn't have options, they didn't add what the community wanted, these other components, and it didn't honor the opt-out. So that is where we're, at, we're left out right now, is we have a committee. They're going to look at all the different curriculum, and they're going to make a recommendation to the board sometime in February, I believe. And I'm hoping that the recommendations will be a couple of different options to choose from that take into consideration all these community wishes. 
And it sounds as if there might be one or two members of that board and they need to be reminded that they're elected to represent parents and to make decisions in the best interest of the children, not to promote personal agendas. And at the end of the day, if the parents are against it, guess what? <laughs> you got to vote against it. I mean, it, it just it's just simple sense that the district does not own kids, even though sometimes they like to act that they do. And I know that that certainly is problematic, and I've I a long history of um, exchanging uh, barbs with the California Teachers Association for this very same topic, that if there is a process in place, the process has to be respected because the parents own the kids, or they're the parents' children, I should say, uh, not that of the districts or the teachers. And at the end of the day, we all pay the taxes. You're exactly right. You, you know, Craig, you, you couldn't be more correct. Because the parents, uh, especially when they're being so vocal, and they're vocal on both sides, and I don't um, uh, disregard the intent of the people who who want the three R's curriculum, but all sides have to see that we have to offer offer options, and we have to find a better solution than that which was presented to us. Uh, One of the other things, and it kind of goes hand in hand with this, it's not exactly on sex education, but what has also been promoted is the uh, district wants to have just one pathway for science in high school and one pathway for math in high school, and it's a little different than the traditional pathways. So what myself and two other board members did was we said we want to offer both pathways. We want to offer a choice so that parents and students have a choice because the traditional pathway, a little bit more robust, and when these children are deciding do they want to go to college, do they want to compete for those really limited slots in college, they want to be able to say, look, I took these classes, I took these AP classes. The district said, no, it should just be one size fits all. And again, we were very much promoting choice. Well, at the end of the day, again, three, two votes on both of these. The parents were allowed to have choice. And the proof is in the pudding that this was the first year that we've had this choice. And 60% of the students chose the traditional pathway. And I think this kind of goes hand in hand with the sex education, with this one size fits all that everybody uh, has to do what they're told instead of listening to the input. So it's a top-down decision-making instead of listening to what the people have to say and making their decision based on that. Well, and you're helping me to, uh, unwittingly so perhaps, Larry, you're helping to, to uh, sort of underscore the point that I've been making on this program uh, for the last many weeks and, and certainly emphasizing both yesterday and today, and that is how critically important it is that we all be involved in the electoral process, get out the vote, because the decisions that that we make will impact the future for many, many generations, whether you're talking about the, the Congress that you vote for and the president that leads to uh, choices on the United States Supreme Court, down to, yes, even the lowly school board that has the power to make decisions that may help to support what values you teach your children at home or to tear them asunder. And so um, I want to urge you to, um, particularly for those residents in the city of Fremont, to, uh, to recognize this, to make sure that you show up next Tuesday or at an early voting place uh, in uh, Alameda County. You can go along, along to the uh, Alameda County website and uh, just simply do a search for um, early voting locations in Alameda County, and it'll take you there. Um, Larry, if folks want to find out more about your uh, candidacy, the values that you stand for, uh, where the, can they get more information about your campaign? Thank you, Craig. It's real easy. It's www.larrysweeney.com. Easy to remember, Larry Sweeney, S-W-E-E-N-E-Y 
Com. Well, Larry, we appreciate uh, not only your willingness to stand up on behalf of the rights of parents and children, uh, but to also uh, join us tonight to share some of your insights. And we wish you success with your campaign for, uh, once again, uh, renewing your seat on the Fremont School Board. It's a, it, See how this came down? One vote. One vote, friends. That's often how tight and critical it is. So if you think your vote doesn't matter. Just imagine how different things would be in the Fremont Unified School District if Larry Sweeney's vote didn't matter. But it does, and so does yours. 549. Actually, 548. Truth in advertising, truth in radio, right? Let's get a look at what's going on. Here's the truth about traffic. Hey, can I copyright that? That's kind of got a little bit of a ring to it. Let's see what's going on out there. Michael Bennett. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right. We're going to get to that story I mentioned a moment ago that um, that really, I think, demonstrates just how far off the rails in some arenas our society has gotten. But let me start with this. Gender dysphoria is real. It is a real diagnosis. The people that struggle with it have real struggles. They need real compassion. They need real help. What they don't need is coddling to in a fashion that requires the other 99% of the populace to, to, to ask people to be compassionate, one thing, to ask people to not only surrender their own personal values, but to surrender what they know science teaches them and to suggest somehow that you can arbitrarily pick your gender, when the fact of the matter is, you've either got the double chromosome or you don't, and that just because you feel a certain way doesn't necessarily entitle you to decide just to do whatever you want, contrary to whether or not it's going to, in a very dilatorious fashion, impact someone else. All right, here's the case. Hope Center. Nonprofit organization offering job skill training, daily meals, laundry, clothing, and overnight shelter to women, all free of charge. Sounds like good stuff, doesn't it? Let's find out their story. Denise Hart joins us, turning with the Alliance Defending Freedom. And uh, Denise, as this story picks up in Anchorage um, from an organization doing some good things to help women um, that are suffering from uh, situations where they're fleeing abusive homes and and whatnot, Uh, they're doing a great job. But then all of a sudden, their story begins to take a turn. Tell us what happened earlier this year. Yes, earlier this year, um, one evening, an individual came to the Hope Center. It was after hours, so um, no one is let into the center after a certain point, just for safety reasons. Um, this individual was uh, a man who was visibly drunk. He was he was injured. He apparently had been in a fight and had been kicked out of another shelter that night after an altercation. And um, he said he identified as a female, and the director here at the Hope Center recognized he was in need of medical care because, he, again, he was wounded and, and very drunk. And so she paid for him to get a taxi to the hospital to be taken care of. And just a couple of days later, uh, this individual filed a complaint, and the Equal Rights Commission of Anchorage launched an investigation into the Hope Center saying that it violated a local law against discrimination 
based on sex and gender identity. And that has been dragging on for eight months now, hanging over the Hope Center's head while it's trying to do its good work serving and loving the homeless women here. So let me see if I got this right. So a man who identifies as a woman but is nevertheless a man shows up at the women's shelter and wants to come in. He is inebriated. He has been into a fight, so he's got some injuries. And the director of the facility, uh, rightfully so, says, well, you know, we are a shelter for women, and there are women here who are escaping abusive situations, sex trafficking uh, scenarios, things of this sort. So there are uh, sleeping quarters, there are showers and changing rooms, uh, and there are sort of a communal uh, scenario for women. And when the man shows up and says, take me in, they rightfully said, mm, this is not the right place for you, but we will get you help, some help. We will get you to a place where uh, you can find some help and relief. I'm, am I correct so far? That's exactly right. So then the city of Anchorage comes in and says, oh, but wait a minute. No, he felt like a woman that day, and so he should have been accommodated. Whether or not this could be a ruse, whether or not this could be a situation that would threaten the very sense of safety and security of women that are escaping oftentimes abusive batter situations. They may be at this point in their lives terrified of men, not least of which embarrassed to be showering with somebody who shows up as a woman and then so comes into the shower, takes her clothes off, and is actually a guy. I mean, this is insanity. That's exactly right. The government wants to force these vulnerable women to sleep and undress alongside biological men who may trigger all sorts of physical and emotional trauma that these women have been through. And there's nobody at the city when they when they pass this thing through and this complaint was filed, there's, there's nobody there um, that has an ounce of brains to say, well, wait a minute now. Uh, there needs to be some, some logic applied to this scenario here. Appar- apparently, PC has gone so wild, they want, don't want to be confused with the facts. I mean, is that essentially what's going on in Anchorage? Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, what's interesting is if you look at the face of the law that they're applying, this anti-discrimination law, can't discriminate based on sex or gender identity, it has an express exemption that this does not apply to homeless shelters. So not only does the law not apply... This person was drunk, and the and the Hope Center does not take people if they're not sober. This person was after hours. This person, and and it's a women's shelter. So this, for all of these reasons, the Hope Center didn't do anything wrong. But the city has a hostility towards religion and the faith-based nature, and that's why it doesn't make sense because it's all about animosity towards the Christian beliefs that are driving the Hope Center's mission. Wow. And um, um, amazingly, they apparently the city of Anchorage has not backed down yet. No, this investigation has gone on for eight months now. And so that's why um, in the past 24 hours, we went ahead and filed an injunction in federal court to ask the court to step in and say that the government can't force a, a faith-based charity to violate its religious beliefs, that uh, individuals are made by God, male and female. That's what the Hope Center believes, and it believes that its duty is to protect vulnerable women. Well, and, imagine and the, the way the women would feel. I mean, for a minute now, so, the, so this this guy's not being pandered to. 
Uh, and again, I'm not unsympathetic to the fact that he struggles with gender dysphoria, but you, 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 he's asking and the city is asking to be pandered to without any regard whatsoever to the kind of attack on a sense of, of well-being and safety and security and embarrassment that it would pose for all of the other women there, for the real women there. Yes, and this is the only all-women's shelter in the larger Anchorage metropolitan area. And this is so this is the only place where, where victims of sexual assault and sex trafficking can come and, and know they're going to have a, a safe place. And I'd like to point out that this individual, before, before the night in question, had come and gotten meals here at the Hope Center and since then has continued to come and get daily meals at, at the soup kitchen where the Hope Center welcomes him and serves him and, and loves him with hot meals whenever he would like to come. Wow. Well, there's a little bit of PC uh, run off the rails, isn't it? And, and, and clearly somebody with an agenda. I mean, then, then all of a sudden you find out and continues to benefit from this organization, even, even as he's trying to take direct financial uh, uh, benefit and, 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 and hardship or ruin to the organization by pursuing this case. Well, uh, we wish you much success. Thank goodness that Alliance Defending Freedom is there uh, to be able to stand in the gap on behalf of Hope Center. Uh, you know, I guess they say uh, Alaska is the last frontier, and they're going to hold true to that statement no matter what, even if it doesn't make any good sense. Amazing story. Well, keep us posted as this thing continues to develop, Denise, and uh, we're certainly going to be hoping and praying that level heads prevail here and real soon. Thanks so much. I appreciate you sharing the story. You bet. Denise Hart there, attorney with the Alliance Defending Freedom, that case out of Anchorage, Alaska. Unbelievable. ADFlegal.org. That's ADFlegal.org for more information about the great work that they do. And if you ever find yourself in trouble, good uh, good location to make sure you got bookmarked. All right. Hopefully you never need it. It's uh, 6 o'clock. Let's get a look at traffic here midway through this Thursday edition of Lifeline. And Michael Bennett, what say you about traffic? Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.